Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 5. After he brushes his teeth, he leaves the bathroom to find her in the half dark bed. Only his bedside lamp and the stars beyond the window casting light into the room. Her body nestled beneath blankets and against pillows. Maroon flannel pajamas. The coziest and drowsiest woman in the world. She reaches out one arm, resting it on top of his side of the bed, looking up at him and askants. So he climbs beneath the covers, lets her into his arms like he did last night. It's almost like how he imagined it would be, with him on his back and her arm over his chest, with her holding onto his side. He knew she would fit so well right there, and though for now the sensation is too new to be wholly comfortable, he's starting to soften into his life. Despite how he spent the last few years of his life sleeping on a couch, that kind of arrangement is starting to seem so foreign to him. As if he only ever slept in borrowed beds beside her. As if she always slipped into his motel room at night and curled up against him. As if the bureau required rooming arrangement was a pure waste of government spending. Before she dressed for bed, he filled a glass of water for her pills, and when he set the glass down on the bedside table, she gave him a small, bashful smile and thanked him. While he brushed his teeth, he thought about how the weather tomorrow might be and wondered if the rain would clear so they could have lunch on the porch before heading out to do something. And though there are hard parts, she took a Zofran tonight, a tiny but recognized pill, a sign that things aren't quite right. There are parts within those too, like letting her sit on the couch while he read off book titles on the shelf because she was too tired to stand and do that herself. Apparently she first read Anne of Green Gables when she was in medical school because her boyfriend had broken up with her right after she struggled through an examination on muscles, her absolute least favorite topic. To this day, she struggles to remember the smaller ones. And she needed something that felt homey, innocent, childlike, warm. She read Don Quixote when she went on a high school Euro trip at 17, plowing through while on a bus from Sorrento to Rome. When he mentioned Jane Austen, Scully called such books overrated, but held a small smile that made him think she believed otherwise. When he came across Moby Dick, he pulled the book from the shelves and sat down beside her, watched as she furrowed her brow and squinted down at the title. First chapter, he asked, and she nodded, even though she seemed not to know what he meant. So he read the first chapter to her. Sides flush on the couch, wood stove warming her cheeks red. Day clothes tired on their bodies, the world beyond them, dark, dark, dark. Eventually, she leaned her head against the back of the couch and brushed his shoulder. Intentionally or unintentionally, he didn't know. And before they could finish the chapter, she gently put her palm down on the pages, looked to him, and asked if they could go to bed. When he met her gaze, he saw how tired she was and wished he could say yes and then carry her to bed, tuck her in, kiss her goodnight, and let her sleep as late as she possibly could. But she liked having her independence, needed it especially now. So he nodded and dog-eared the page, went to stand up, but stopped as she took the book from him, opened up their page, and flattened out the top, almost obsessively. No dog-ears allowed. He wishes there was some way to tell her everything he feels, but there's no way at least not one within this language. Sometimes, he's wondered about that, about how other life forms communicate their emotions, for there must be better methods than the ones human beings have come up with. 
despite countless languages among the species. He can sit beside her, knowing she hasn't a clue what he's feeling, and that feels particularly inadequate. Though he could try to speak, the constraints of language would make the words feel both too vulnerable and too stark, aimless and empty, but also visceral and frightening. He doesn't know what he could say that wouldn't sound both too real and too unreal. I've dreamt about this, he says, voice so quiet that even her god can't hear, and she smells like herself, not like hospitals, but like herself, like bits of perfume she leaves behind when she heads out of the office for the day, like the hand cream she offers him when it's winter and his knuckles start to crack, and feeling her breath against him is something he never knew he needed to feel. She's so small, so uncharacteristically gentle, so warm. She's perfect here in his arms. Me too, she says. He's starting to learn how to live with someone. He's starting to learn how to love her. He closes his eyes and feels her breath against him, and sleep feels the closest it's felt to him in years. He wakes when the mattress dips, then looks to find her sitting by his feet, dressed and ready for the day, cardigan over her floral dress, holding a ceramic mug full of coffee. You slept in, she says, cheeks warm with color, hair pulled back in a little bun. He can't remember ever having seen her in florals, let alone a pattern. Tiny white flowers, seafoam-colored linen, a tie at the waist, wedding band against the handle of the mug. Reaching out, he sits up. She passes him the mug, the coffee inside Milky. Of course. She's known how he likes his coffee for a long time, maybe even from the first case onward. They sat in diners together as he poured significant portions of tiny creamer cups into his chip mug and she could probably make a mug to his taste without thinking about it at all. But there's something different about having his wife reach out to him, handing him a morning cup of coffee. There's something about it that makes the first sip taste far better than any coffee should ever taste. What time is it, he asks, wondering when she got up, wondering when she moved away from him in bed last night, wondering if she's taken another Zofran. 10.30, she says, then folds her hands on her lap. I had energy for once. He hums a response, takes another sip. I thought we might stay in today, she says, so to speak. As in? Walking along the beach for a while. Maybe pick up dinner somewhere, she says. Let me make you some toast. No need. He sits the mug down on his bedside table, right next to the tissues he keeps for her. Really? Not a breakfast person. She furrows her brow a little, then excuses herself while he starts to sit up in bed closing the bedroom door behind her. No pantyhose, toenails painted in opaque pink that he hadn't noticed yet, knees pale, legs two days unshaven. He picks through a suitcase, stares out the bedroom window in search of the weather. He thinks, what other clothes did she bring? And then he remembers the sweaters she's worn in casual moments after cases, cardigans buttoned up when he came over unannounced, t-shirts that weren't work appropriate. During their impulsive makeshift wedding, He looked at her dress, shimmering gray-blue fabric, long sleeves, and wondered if she had bought it specifically for the occasion. She couldn't have, he thought, but he'd had two rings in his hands then, purchased as quickly as he could, provided even though she told him they weren't necessary. So she could have gone out in search of a dress. But did she? Did she take her mother to a department store, or did she reach into the back of her closet and say that this would do? How much of her has he really seen? Though it feels like he's seen everything, the reality is that he knows almost nothing about her. Let me see you, he wants to say, 
And because she's not here right now, he could very easily go through her suitcase. But at the same time, he doesn't want to know. Not yet, part of him says. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But when, another part asks, if not now. On the beach, she stands on tiptoe more often. She climbs on top of the bigger rocks and looks out the ocean, murky in comparison to that around tropical islands. Dark and almost ominous. Cold. But she grew up in cold places. Whenever a case has taken them to a naval base, he's watched the way her body and mind recognize such places. Generic houses made into homes. All of the children playing together in exactly one place. All the mothers having parties intended for selling cosmetics. Christmas trees placed in the same window of each house down the street. She could make a home out of a hostel bed if need be, hanging her press suits off the headboard, keeping a book she's sorely neglecting beneath the overstarched pillow. She's not afraid of desolate places. If she wants to, she'll take off her little white sneakers and step into the ocean, maybe even go for a swim. But instead, she reaches out from up on a tall rock on because she wants to hold his hand. Maine is different from the beaches of his childhood. Back then, everything was sandy and upscale, rich even though he didn't realize it at the time. Summer crowds littering the ocean, children running amok because their parents couldn't be bothered to pay attention to them. But here, there are pine trees along the coastline, lobster traps bobbing in the dark waters, rocks and shells covering up any possible sand. Because of the winds coming off the ocean, she had to button up her cardigan. But the sun makes the day seem deceptively warm the water shimmering and the open mussel shells on the ground sparkling, and her little bun looking so very red. Along the coast, the houses are small and thematic, buoys hanging on the outsides of cabins, overturned sailboats on the lawn waiting for summertime, and likely seasonal, for the grasses there have grown tall and billowy, and they've likely to see another soul. Though it's off-season, he didn't think they would be so alone. She lets go of his hand, then walks towards the waves, crouching down on the wet rocks, fingering through the pebbles. When she finds something, she holds it up, looks at him. A scallop shell, ivory-colored with yellowing tips, shimmering on the inside. He would have never seen it buried there beneath the pebbles. I had this thought, he forces out, and his face feels hot with admission, even his back aching with embarrassment. Standing back up, she looks up at him, scallop shell clasped in her fingers. Go on. She doesn't need to say, and he swallows hard because he doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want to say it at all. But when, if not now? I thought maybe, he says, looking down, looking away from her. While we're here, you could find shells for us to take home. I thought about keeping them on my windowsill, for when you're... If he finishes the sentence, he'll start to cry. So he doesn't finish the sentence, doesn't look at her. Instead... Focuses on the shells clutched in her hand. Yellow tips, ivory body. He can picture it so easily. That one would go in his bedroom. For he'll have a bedroom then because he's a married. Widowed? It doesn't matter. Man. And married men have bedrooms. Yes, he'll clean out that room, get rid of every last box. He'll quit his job even. But first, he'll start with the bedroom. He'll clean out all the boxes and then he'll finally buy a bed. And he'll stay over at her place one night so he can peek at what kind of mattress she has, then buy exactly that one. And he'll start keeping better food in the fridge for when she comes over. Snack packs and whatever else she could fancy. Chamomile tea, almond milk even. 
He'll take a few books of hers before she dies so that he won't have to wonder if he should give them away. And then he'll have that little scallop shell on the windowsill in his bedroom. And when he wakes up each morning, it will be the first thing he looks at. And he will remember her and he'll remember how much he loves her. Okay, she says. But she doesn't sound right. Yeah, I can do that. Airy. She sounds airy, as if her voice isn't entirely there, as if she's sick. When he looks up at her, her brow is furrowed, lips slightly pursed, and he's said the wrong thing, the exact wrong thing, and he's always been good at saying the wrong thing. He's always been so good at hurting others, he shouldn't have said anything. She turns away from him, continues to walk along the beach, doesn't turn back to face him, doesn't wait, and he wants to apologize, but he doesn't know how to. Isn't he supposed to say what he feels? Shouldn't she do the same? But that was too much. Too much for right now. But how was he supposed to know that? What could he have done instead? Does he have enough time left to love her? Or will they be like this for as long as she lives? Drifting together and apart like the tides to the beach. Joining and unjoining. Eternally drawn to each other. But for such an indifferent reason. And she's upset with him but upset in a way that makes her set seashells in a straight line on top of his open suitcase, meandering over unfolded shirts and stuffed-in socks. She's upset in a way that makes her say she'd like to walk down the driveway, see if any other houses are lived in at all. And she's upset in a way that tells him not to follow her, as she surely doesn't do exactly that. And he should make her lunch, but he stares into the half-empty fridge and doesn't know how to. There are pudding cups in the garbage, Red lids peeled back, spoons in the dish rack. Closing his eyes, he tries to remember their last case, whether she had mustard or mayonnaise on her sandwich back then. When she's not back in half an hour, he gives up on lunch, goes back to the bedroom, stares down at the shells on top of his clothes. He doesn't want to move them. If anything, he wants to photograph them. He wants to remember her anger. He wants to remember everything. He wants to remember how the wheels of his suitcase crest on the top handle of hers how she folds her clothes in a neat way that keeps them from coming unfolded in travel, how her pajamas are all together in one section, how she rolled up her socks in a certain way to conserve space. And because he can't ask, at least not yet, he peels apart the layers of fabric, softer than her suits, no long black coats or kitten heels, just flannel and silk pajamas along with little dresses and blue jeans and woolens. She brought three hair clips with her, seven barrettes, four scrunchies, and he doesn't know the thought process behind those choices. Doubts he ever will. But because it's Scully, he knows she has a reason. Underneath her pajamas, she keeps her underwear. And though it goes against everything he knows about himself, he finds that he's horribly afraid of her underwear. Closes his eyes while he puts the pajamas back. Waits until everything is covered up before opening again. But when he opens his eyes, he finds a black bound book at the bottom of her bag. Her journal, he thinks then opens it without a second thought, the page marked with a ribbon because she's scully, and the page is dated yesterday, and she wrote only one sentence, no period at the end. For the first time since the diagnosis, I'm afraid of dying. He turns the page back, and the entry is much longer, and because he's too tunnel vision to read at all, he hones in on just a few parts. No blood on my pillow. Kissed me in the supermarket. Not alone at night. The next page back isn't dated. It feels too good to be a mistake. 
Turning again, the paper feels different, for she's taped in a photograph, a copy of their wedding picture, a different one from the one she showed the nurse on her last day of chemotherapy. For that one ended up with a blood stain on it. They're in front of the church, and her little strappy heels are sinking into the springtime mud, and his arm is around her back, and they look like they're on their first date. In a way, in a way his smile looks poised, and she's squinting because the sun is in her eyes. The gold of her cross clashes with the silvery tones of her dress. When they kissed for the first time in that church, he had been so afraid to bump her nose and thought he knew a Catholic parish had likely seen plenty of poorly executed kisses. He wanted the small but monumentous gesture to say more, to express what he couldn't say yet. I have loved her for years, he wished he could say, since she stood before me in a cemetery while it poured rain and told me I was crazy, and I'd take so many years off my life and give them to her if only I could. He knew that a nose-bump kiss could never convey that. Mulder. When he looks up, she's in the bedroom doorway, arms folded across her chest, staring down at him as if she's about to cry, and he didn't hear her come back inside. He didn't hear her come back inside. He didn't hear her come back inside. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.